Um, the first reading this morning comes from Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. I believe it's page 676 in your pew Bibles. Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary, of the, sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Is it because the Lord is acting as a witness between, it is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the father of your, the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And, and, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. The second reading is from Ephesians 5, verse 21 to 33. And you can find it on page 829 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Wives and husbands, wives, submit your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church his body, for which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her, with, present her to himself as a radiant church without brain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord.
Let me, let me add my welcome. If you're new or visiting, my name is Mark. It's great to have you amongst us today. Uh, 2011 for our church is the year of reaching those we know. Uh, that is, we want people to come to know Christ, and by impl- implication, uh, it means we need to be able to relate well. Uh, that's why we're looking at relationships. Last week we started looking at marriage, what marriage is. We're looking at what marriage is for today, looking at singleness and friendship in the weeks to come. Uh, let me say, before we even get into it, uh, it's both a big topic, and so I'm going to end up talking for longer than I normally do. Uh, it's also an awkward topic. You know, I imagine we all felt the tone shift with those two readings, like you had Malachi, I hate divorce, not I hate divorcees, but God, I hate divorce. You kind of go, that already sets one part of the tone, and then we just read Ephesians chapter 5, which in our kind of culture is pretty awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, so already there's that kind of tone of we're in touchy ground and talking about close relationships. Uh, this is meant to start conversations encased in God's gracious love for us. Okay, this is a start of conversations encased in God's gracious love for us. Uh, so as we tackle it, uh, let's keep that in mind that it's the God who loves us who speaks to us. Uh, let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the way in which you do love us. Uh, the way in which you have designed us to live in uh, the best way possible when we live in obedience to you and for the way in which you loved us even when we are disobedient you sent your son that we might have life and have forgiveness and have sin's power and penalty destroyed and we pray now as we uh, look at your word and reflect upon it that you would be teaching us by your spirit you would be speaking to each one of us that we would see just how good your word is And that we might be able to thank you for it and live in obedience to it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Invariably, a a few months after a friend gets married, you bump into them down the street and you can't help asking them, oh, so how's married life? And it generally gets a vague, good. And then the conversation turns to something that's a little more sustainable. Uh, I'm not entirely sure when I ask the question what other people... what do, what do we actually expect to hear when we ask that question, how's married life? You know, we're expecting a mark out of 10, oh, I'm about a 6.3 this week. Are, are we asking it for their good? You know, given that in Hebrews 13, uh, we are told and called all that marriage should be honoured by all, you know, can you actually help others have a healthier marriage? If you're married, can you have an honourable marriage? If you're unmarried, can you have right expectations about marriage? Uh, Can we, as a community, actually bless our society by helping them to relate well to God the way God intended? Well, I think we can only do those things if we know not just what marriage is, but what it's aiming for. So last week we described marriage as a building that God designed. It's a gift from God in creation and that we either welcome it or reject it, but we don't tinker with it. But we didn't say what the building is for. This morning we're looking at what marriage is for, why God has given it. And again, I want to say it could be difficult territory encased in grace. Uh, For just as honouring marriage is found in upholding God's, you know, the structure God has given it, uh, we must also uphold its God-given purposes. Marriage, I said to you last week, is sex in the service of God. That is sex in in the sense that's the distinctive feature of that relationship that's found in no other relationship. But the purpose in the service of God is common to all relationships. It's just played out in different ways in marriage. Uh, So to explain marriage's purpose another way, marriage is designed 
to help us meet God's goals. Marriage is designed to help us meet God's goals. Now, this is not a claim to say that marriage is a superior state to singleness. As we'll see next week, singleness is also designed for us to meet God's goals, but in a different way. Okay? It's not a claim to superiority or inferiority. Um, but the overarching principle is that marriage is designed to help us meet God's goals. So in Genesis 1, uh, it's easy to find, it's at the start of your Bible. Genesis 1, verse 27 and 8, we see God's goals for humanity. Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, there is God's purpose for humanity, twofold. It's to relate like him and it's to rule like him. So we're to relate like him. We are in his image. We are a complex unity. That is, he, he, you know, God is one God, uh, Father, Son and Spirit. And we are one humanity, male and female, distinct yet united. We are to relate like him. We are to rule like him as well. You know, to fruitfully increase the number of humans, to, to subdue creation. That's important if you skip over the page, Genesis 2.15, we're to care for creation, not exploit it. Okay, we subdue but not exploit. That is, the goal of humanity is to image God himself, to reflect God, to relate like him, to rule like him. Yeah, and that general purpose for humanity controls the purpose for marriage. God gives marriage as a gift to help us meet those goals. So over in Genesis 2.18, we see God gives marriage in response to a problem. So 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that's a jarring verse, particularly if you've been reading through Genesis, because the repeated phrase up until then is about, you know, creation is good, 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 very good. Uh, but here is a problem in creation and it's not sin. Sin hasn't come in yet till the next chapter, chapter 3. So what's the problem? At first glance, it seems simple. You know, man's alone, that's not good. God creates a woman, now he's not alone. At first glance, you'd go, oh, God's creating a, a solution to man's loneliness. You know, a la Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me. You know, that kind of, you know, it seems simple. Uh, at a closer look, though, Man's loneliness is not the problem. The problem is a lack of a suitable helper. So in the context, the problem is that one man alone cannot fulfil the purposes God designed for him. You know, one man can't reflect God's image of relating. One man alone can't rule and subdue the world. One man alone can't be fruitful and reproduce. A uh, woman is created at that point to do what animals can't, to complement man so that humanity might meet God's goals. Yeah, and marriage is one of the avenues where humanity might be able to do that. Yeah, and the beautiful freedom here is seeing marriage is not the solution to loneliness, although it may be a solution to loneliness, but it's not the solution. Yeah, the Bible's solution to loneliness is loving fellowship. You know, the, the most exceptional pictures of relationships that the Scriptures give us have nothing to do with marriage or sex. Um, 1 John chapter 4, read it later, speaks of God's love for us and therefore our love for one another uh, and his beautiful divine love. Um, in John 13 to 16, Jesus speaks really intimately with his friends, but it's not about marriage. 
In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul uh, reveals his own heart and just how passionate he is for the believers he writes to, but it's not about marriage. You know, the relief that marriage is not the, the, the answer to loneliness takes a weight off, first of all, those who are single. You know, it says that marriage is not the, the only long-term quality relationship. It says that you, you aren't condemned to loneliness if you're not married. But it also takes a weight off those who are married from thinking that their marriage has to be the only place where their relational needs get met. Yeah, married or single, you can have very good relationships outside that parameter. Uh, we'll get to that in two weeks' time when we talk about friendship. But it's enough for us to observe at this point, marriage is designed for us to meet God's goals. Four ways I want us to see the Bible fleshes that out, what marriage is for, how that helps us meet God's goals. First, marriage is for the good of each other. Helps us relate the way God wants. So it's not the solution to loneliness, but it may well be a solution. Because marriage, like all godly relationships, is other person-centred. The heart of it there is in Genesis 2.24. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. One flesh is not merely sex. It's a profound unity. That one individual is so concerned to selflessly love the other and serve the other, they become entirely one. You know, that, that commitment to the good of another that, that unites them without any, any trace of reservation, without any hint of barrier, that is the heart, not only of the perfect marriage relationship, but God himself, the Trinity. You know, Father, Son and Spirit are one because they are so committed to loving one another they, that they mutually indwell each other. Jesus used the language of oneness in John 14 to speak of God's internal relationship, internal fellowship. See, by, by virtue of, of God's eternal love, the Father, the Spirit and the Son, they, they dwell in each other to such an extent that they become one, they united. It's this process of pure and perfect empathy. You know, God in three persons relating so perfectly so intimately, so concerned for the other that they become one. In John 15, Jesus then makes the offer for us to be one with him by our love. Which is why when we get that reading in Ephesians 5, Paul can speak of the one flesh relationship of marriage. It's really about Christ and the church. To be one flesh is to be entirely committed to the good of the other. And therefore, you're united. Not that it destroys distinctiveness. That's really important. They don't have to be identical for this to occur. The the Father doesn't become the Son by being one with him. Christ doesn't morph into us, the church. And in marriage, we are building oneness. Not so that each person becomes indistinguishable from one another. That would be a nightmare. Uh, All of you who are married, yeah, Mm, no. Uh, but so that together you can actually build something together that you couldn't do alone. That together you are a one, one team, if you like. Yeah. Marriage is for the good of one another. That's the purpose. And, and that has implications. It means that marriage is not designed to meet your needs. Okay? It's not designed to meet your needs. Uh, any man who goes out looking to marry to have his own needs met has already fallen at the first hurdle. He has failed to love. Uh, He's taken that short step from loving you to loving me by wanting you. Yet marriage is designed to help us learn and live out other person-centeredness. And because of its 
sexual and one flesh nature, it permits this intimacy that's, that's not experienced elsewhere. And because it's till death, there's a longevity that's not always available elsewhere. And so while a marriage shouldn't only be for the good of each other, it should at least be for the good of each other. It should provide a place and have the goal of the good of each other. It should provide a place where loyal, permanent, faithful friendship occurs. A place where we can be confidently serving and be served for life. Yet marriage is for the sake and for the good of each other. Yeah, perhaps the clearest example is that of sex. Uh, we talked about it last week. God gives sex as a gift to marriage that we might serve our partner. So Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 7 is the husband's body doesn't belong to him but his wife and vice versa. It helps us see that marital sex is actually about serving the relationship. Yeah, sex doesn't exist for anyone to selfishly satisfy personal desires. Yeah, sex is not a gift for those with sexual desire. It is a gift to those who are married, irrespective of their sexual desire. Yeah, God frees us to serve in sex, not to be in the service of sex. And so the unmarried are therefore free to live chaste. A word I'm trying to get reintroduced into language. Uh, because sex is not for them. And those who are married are free to make use of sex to be for the good of the other, as well as meet other purposes uh, for marriage, which we yet to touch on. That's just one example of the general requirement of mutual service, the laying down of our life for the other, which is required in all relationships, but even more intensely in marriage. Uh, in Ephesians, the intensity of love was captured. Roger read it to us, saying in Ephesians 5, 28 and 9, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Yeah, so that the mark of a marriage that's actually fulfilling its goals is that it will be good for each other. There will be an obvious to all that there is mutual service going on, both partners you know, giving to each other, both partners working for each other's good, not for each other's whims. And you get it, isn't that just the, the opposite of the way the world operates? In our world, the, the dominant paradigm for thinking about relationships is what can I get from this? You know, so I'm taking someone's business card because I'm thinking I need his business. Alternatively, I'm not taking hers because I'm not interested. You know, the dominant paradigm is how can I secure my rights? How can I make sure that I'm not being taken advantage of here? Not how can I give? How can I give up my rights for the sake of the other? I don't think this will be automatic for us. It will require husbands to lead and wives to respect that leadership because to be one, you need one leader, not two. It will require patient conflict uh, because you put any two people together and inevitably they will have a different view on at least something, if not most things. You know, it will require much repentance and a lot of forgiveness because we live this side of Genesis 3. Uh, let me suggest if you've not had the opportunity uh, to repent recently in your marriage, then perhaps go and seek some feedback from your husband or wife. There's probably plenty to do. And if we achieve this, it becomes this great platform for marriage to actually pursue its other purposes. That is, purposes where marriage is designed to be a blessing beyond itself. So purpose two, marriage is for children. Perhaps the primary way in which marriage blesses beyond itself is in welcoming children. Uh, so last week I suggested that Christians, many Christians, see marriage as the place where sex is permitted but fail to see where, that's where sex is required. Similarly, I think, with children. 
Christians see marriage as the appropriate place for children, but they're less certain they're necessary. I need to be on ultra-careful territory here, and you need to listen exceptionally well. Uh, We are moving on very sensitive territory. I am not saying marriage must have children. Rather, a marriage must be open to children. There's an important difference. The former is welcoming God's purposes for marriage. They just haven't been blessed, haven't received the gift of children. The latter is not welcoming God's purposes for marriage. A marriage must be open to children. It must have as part of their plan to try and have children. It doesn't guarantee they'll actually have them. God may not have blessed them that way. I don't want to be creating an obligation that God requires to, you know, of you to, to have something that, you, you, that is beyond your control. But I do want to say there would not ordinarily be okay for a couple to go out of their way to permanently avoid the possibility of God giving them those children. I'm not talking about how contraception is used for a period, but I'm saying about the permanent avoidance of welcoming children. And I, what the Bible says here, I think, is radically countercultural. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, society sees children as a, a product of choice. You know, in some senses, children are an inconvenience. Uh, there's an old ad for Porsche, which I think sums it up. Uh, there's this picture of this beautiful Porsche. I don't know a lot about cars. It's a Porsche something or other. It's pretty. Um, under it, uh, there's this headline, Porsche have just released their latest baby. And then underneath it, you might want to delay yours. Yeah, it sums it up, doesn't it? You know, that, that's, children are a cost. They're going to threaten your lifestyle. They'll upset your life. You know, and they're right there. They're just wrong in thinking that it is such a bad thing to have your life upset and to have your lifestyle challenged. Yeah, and these attitudes, that kind of attitude, I think, of uh, puts an unfair burden on children having to justify their expense. And on top of that, you add the perception in our society that home life is a place of drudgery and that workplace is where you go and you meet interesting people and you get recognised and you get value. Uh, even though I think that's an overly optimistic view of work and an overly pessimistic view of the joys of raising children, it's powerful and it's what we hear all the time. And theologically, it's even more dangerous because it reinforces a lie that life is about self-fulfilment, not service, and so that raising children is somehow of less value than making profits for a multinational. And all this is background noise that makes it really hard to hear the Bible's very simple message about children. Children are a blessing. A blessing that God gives to marriage. They're anticipated in that first marriage. Uh, God provided a suitable helper for Adam to fill the earth in Genesis. And the place for them ideally to be raised is in the context of marriages. Put more starkly that hard reading from Malachi 2. Malachi 2.15. Has not the Lord God made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. That is, God joined them together. He was involved in that marriage and made them one. Why did he make them so intimately connected? Why? That they might have godly offspring. Marriage was made so that children could be raised. You know, it's one of the reasons why marriage is a lifelong commitment because it's the proper place for a child to be raised. Now, of course, I know we don't live in an ideal world. I know that we don't live, you know, this side of the fall in in ideal circumstances and we know that many people have been protected and loved by God and preserved through unideal circumstances of family life. 
but it still remains that marriage is the proper place for children to be welcomed and raised. Now, however much I say on this topic, I feel like uh, I've said both too much and also not enough. You know, because of our past, because of our culture, because of all sorts of reasons, it's going to be hard for us to welcome children. Uh, not that least at times children are quite hard to welcome. My hope is that we can have as a community, as a church community, a, a gentle ongoing conversation about how we all welcome children. So if you thought about this issue before, you know I've left lots of questions unanswered. Um, I suspect the key Christian characteristic for thinking about this is hospitality. You know, welcoming strangers into your life is the way we think about it. And so I'm keen to, to prod and just throw out there some big unthought assumptions. You know, why is it that we as Christians wait so long to have children into our marriages? Now, I'm not saying you have to fall pregnant on your honeymoon, but have we really thought about why it is that we have a culture where we spend such a long time as a couple preventing the arrival of a child? Or, or why is it we have X many children? Notice I didn't put a number. You know, are, are we reflecting we believe that they are a blessing, but not the only blessing that God gives? Just out there for conversation. But I want to finish on that topic without saying something to those who find themselves in the predicament where they would love to welcome children or more children. Uh, in many ways, they're in the most difficult situation of all. Uh, first thing I want to acknowledge is the genuine loss. Uh, and the Bible sees it as such. It is grief-worthy. I think is where our, our culture of, of choice about children, that language that's used in our culture, robs us of the proper categories to think about this grief. So if our culture is right, and it's just, you know, to, to, to be childless is simply a desire thwarted, it's just a choice you didn't have, you know, it's just like missing a, you know, a big overseas trip. Big deal. But if what I've said is the Bible's right, then it's not so much that your desire has been thwarted, but your design has been thwarted. And so it's much more like losing a leg than losing an overseas trip. Yeah, that is, you can still go on and have a useful, joyful life, but will have complications. I want to say as well, if you're in that situation, you have a proper marriage. Yeah, children are not part of the definition of marriage, they're part of the purposes. I want to say as well that you have a scenario with some strange possibilities. You have been gifted by God with some of the, the blessings of marriage and some of the freedoms of singleness. And it may be that God may present you some unusual ways to serve him because of it. And lastly, I want to encourage you to still be open to including children in your life. You know, whether it's adoption, whether it's fostering, whether it's just getting to know uh, the children of friends and the kids here at Kids Church and loving them. Marriage is for children. Uh, thirdly, marriage is for the good of society. Again, it's embedded in Genesis. Uh, the task humanity was given was not just fill the earth, but subdue it. Uh, that is, there were people, people to feed, there were places to go, there were things to do. Yeah, and, and so while it's good and proper that we are concerned for how we support those who are married and honour that, those who are married must honour marriage by considering how they support the world. Now, raising godly children, sure, that's a great start. Uh, so too, going out in the world to work, 
uh, whether or not you receive pay for it. You know, some of the privileges of marriage, you, you can have some combined household things. You don't have to buy two fridges. Money's freed up. You can be useful in other ways. You know, in the same way, we, we invite the world into our homes. We open our families up for the benefit and welcome of others. The point is, marriage is not meant to exist just for the good of those who are in the marriage, but for the good of those who are outside. It is for the good of society. Uh, I think 1 Corinthians 7, a little later on, verse 29 to 31, opens up the truth of what that looks like as we wait for Jesus to return. So 1 Corinthians 7, 29. Uh, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short, and from now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they didn't. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it wasn't theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. That is, Paul is fleshing out the foundational truth that marriage is not a goal in itself. Uh, earlier in the chapter, Paul had been arguing some people might choose to stay single so they can go and tell more people about Jesus in these last days before he comes back to judge. But he didn't say it to them so that married people could think, whew, Glad I got married, don't have to worry about the whole telling people about Jesus thing. No, 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 the very opposite. Those who are married need to hear this word very loud and clear. The world is passing away. Yeah, and we're very easily tempted to be engrossed in marriages, in families, our houses, our possessions, renovations. Yeah, those of us who are married need to organise our lives so that we are part of the work of the kingdom of God that we are part of the work of evangelising and discipling, that, that we are loving not just those neighbours who are under our roof, but those neighbours who are just a little bit further afield. Yet married people still get to make sacrifices for Jesus. They still get to take up the cross daily. You know, it's going to look different to how a, a single person might go about it. You know, it's not going to involve abandoning your spouse for the sake of the gospel or abandoning your children. And it will shift with different stages of life that we go through and find ourselves in. You know, there are moments where, yep, you've got to retreat and just care for those under your roof. All those things are true. But none of them should stop us looking outward to how we serve those beyond our family. I'll say more about this uh, next week, but I've got a particular request to make of those who are single. Uh, to those who aren't married, can I ask you, please help your married friends from falling into the trap of being consumed by this world's trappings. They need help. Because marriage has been designed for the good of society, not for the good, just the family. Now, the fourth and significantly briefer point, marriage is for the glory of God. Now, God gave us marriage to help us meet his goals. Hopefully you're starting to see how these purposes are gradually extending out from the partner to children to society, ultimately to God himself. So in Ephesians 5, we read how human marriage is actually a picture to help us understand the profound love that Christ has for us, his people, the church. And the right way is for us to submit to that kind of love. And as Paul writes there, he slides between kind of marital advice and theological truths. His intention is revealed in, in Ephesians 5.32, I am talking about Christ and the church. He's not really focused on marriage, he's really focused on trying to help us understand how Jesus loves us. Yeah, it's picked up again in Revelation 21, uh, that heavenly wedding of Christ and his bride, the church, being united forever. Yeah, marriage is given that we might better grasp God's love. Marriage is given that it might point us to him. And marriage, like, like all creation, like every aspect of life, is designed for his glory. Right, that's why I said last week, 
uh, husband must take the headship of his family like a crown of thorns, just like Jesus did. He must do what is best for his wife, not necessarily what she wants, certainly not what he wants, but he must do what is best for her. So the image of Christ's love is not distorted before a watching world, but rather God is glorified. Marriage is designed to help us meet God's goals. Uh, And God says marriage should be honoured by all. I want to say there's nothing wrong with you asking that newly married couple, how's married life? But but let's not be content with just asking that question. Whatever your situation, whatever your state, let's help those who are married see that marriage never stops with a couple's ambitions, but is for God's greater goals. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the way in which you have designed such a great world, uh, fallen as we are, imperfect as we are, uh, we pray that you would help us to delight in your purposes and design, that we would be helping others uh, live out the kind of relationships that honour and please you, and that we would be concerned to love you and love others in the way that we ourselves relate. Father, we ask that uh, in our marriages uh, we would be honouring you And we ask in the way that we love our neighbours around us, we would help them to live in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.